That's the first movement of part one of Perot Lanier by Arnold Schoenberg. We heard Mondestrunken, or Moondrunk. Christine Schaefer singing with the ensemble Intercontemporain. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Seth Bostead, and this is the second of a three-part series of shows tracing the evolution of two modernist titans. The first show was Stravinsky. The second show today will be Schoenberg from 1912-1913 all the way up to the present era. 1912 and 1913 were huge years in classical music, really saw the advent of modernism in music, and there was no turning back from that point. 1913 was the premiere of The Rite of Spring. As we know, it's the 100-year anniversary now. Really, really smashed musical conventions, uh, flew in the face of the notions of what classical music was at that time. And like I said, there was really no turning back from that point. The year before, 1912, saw the premiere of Pierrot Lanaire by Arnold Schoenberg, and I would say that it was a much sneakier thing than the Rite of Spring. There were no riots. It didn't seem like it was as big a change or, uh, you know, we can no longer look back from here <laughs> like it was with Rite of Spring. But nonetheless, it, it had a very pervasive influence on a lot of composers. After the Pierrot Lanaire, Schoenberg was silent for six years. He didn't compose a note. He knew he was almost where he wanted to be. It was a freely atonal work. It was extending the chromaticism of Wagner and Brahms and Mahler and everybody. So he knew it was pushing the German tradition of music forward a little bit, but it wasn't quite where he wanted to be. Six years later, he would invent the 12-tone serial system of composition. And we'll get there in just a moment. But first, let's hear the rest of the first part of Pierrot Lanaire. We're going to hear a lot of things here, a, a technique in the singing called Sprechstimme, in which she sings and speaks at the same time, and that was just to highlight the expressionist nature of the text. And I think that the freely atonal nature of the work also highlights the expressionist nature. Pierrot Lanaire is a stock character who is uh, a little insane. <laughs> He's crazy. And so his experiences of the world are a lot different than ours, and Schoenberg uses atonality and the Sprechstimme technique to highlight that. So let's go back to part one of Schoenberg's Perot Lanaire. We're going to pick up from the second movement. Again, this is Christine Schaefer singing with members of the Ensemble Intercontemporain. Thank you. 
Zur Nachtzeit gleiche Tücher und die sanfte Magd des Himmels von den Zweigen zart umschmeichelt, breitet auf die dunklen Wiese ihre lichtgewobenen Linden eine blasse Wäsche. Sat 
Tropfen Blut färbt die Lippen einer Kranken.
Krankenmus zur nächsten geht, belustigt dann der Strahlenspiel ein bleiches, knallgewordenes Blut. Du lächelst That was the rest of part one of Pierrot Lanier by Arnold Schoenberg. We heard Christine Schaefer with members of the Ensemble Intercontemporain. Really wonderfully evocative music, I think. And here, the atonality is at the service of an expressionist text about Pierrot Lunaire, a man who's been touched by the moon, as they called it back in the old days, Lunaire, of course, being moon. Um, he's, he's a little bit crazy, a little bit off, and we hear that in the music. I think it really, really comes through. But Schoenberg was a really restless guy. He wanted to do a lot more than this. And what he really wanted to do was kind of ensure that music never had a tonal center, that it never rests. Most of our Western music is built on a hierarchy of pitches. So in C major, C is the most important pitch, and then G is the second most important, and, and down from there. Composers already, long before Schoenberg, had been kind of uh, stretching this idea and stretching, especially the idea of key relationships, how one key gets to another, doing them very abruptly, going to odd keys, et cetera, et cetera. And so Schoenberg was thinking the next step is to just continue this and be freely atonal. Um, but like I said, after Perot Lanier, he didn't write for six years. He was just agonizing, <laughs> racking his brain uh, to come up with the next big thing. And what he decided was that he wanted to systematize this so that there was no way any tone could ever become predominant, that the music would never rest. And he came up with the 12-tone system, also known as dodecophony, also known as serialism. In the 12-tone system, a composer arranges the 12 notes in any order that he or she wants, but then they have to be played in that order. You cannot play a C-sharp once you've played another pitch until you've cycled through all 12, and in that way they're of equal importance. Let's have a listen to the first piece in the serial style by Arnold Schoenberg. This is from his Five Pieces for Piano, Movement 5, and we're going to have Glenn Gould performing. Thank you. 
That was Glenn Gould performing Movement 5 of Five Pieces for Piano by Arnold Schoenberg, the first piece he wrote in this new serial style that really took him about six years to, uh, to come up with. He was restless with free atonality. He was convinced that was the next step in uh, German music, but he wanted to go even further, and the serial system ensures that no one pitch is any more important than another, and we can really hear that in that piece, wonderfully performed by Glenn Gould. From this moment on, Schoenberg is only going to write serial music. And uh, as I said in the beginning of the program, I'm going to trace the development of that up to the modern era. It was hugely influential. So many composers influenced by it. Schoenberg himself told a friend that this would ensure the supremacy of German music for another hundred years. And he really felt that way. He was very passionate that this was the next logical step in music. And so were several other people. His two famous pupils were Alban Berg and Anton Webern, and they're fascinating people in their own right because they show that although they subscribe to his philosophy and that this was the next step in music, they have very different ways of doing it. Webern was very didactic. It took him a long time to write a piece. He never broke the rules of 12-tone. Once he made his matrix, as it's called, of the 12 tones, he, he was very strict in his adherence to it. Berg was a little bit looser, as we'll hear in a moment. But let's listen to the Emerson String Quartet perform two movements from Five Movements for String Quartet by Anton Webern. These are both written in a very strict serial style. <laughs>
it's become kind of a maxim of serial music that it's never beautiful and it's never lovely and it's always creepy, crawly, and restless. But I don't think that's true. And you, you can really hear that in the Webern. Very, very lovely movement there, preceded by a more traditionally serial sounding movement. We heard the first two movements of five movements for a string quartet, Anton Webern, performed wonderfully there by the Emerson String Quartet. So Webern is the more didactic pupil, as I said. He, he takes serialism very, very, very seriously. He's a meticulous composer. It, it takes him years to write a piece, and the scores are just, I mean, they're so detailed. Everything, exactly how he wants them bowed, exactly how long each note should be held. There are tempo changes all throughout. He's just an incredibly detail-oriented composer. Contrast that with Schoenberg's other very famous pupil, Albin Baird. Baird was a precociously gifted musician. Uh, it just seemed that music flowed out of him. He was drawn to Schoenberg's style for many reasons, but he wasn't as cerebral as Webern, and uh, he wasn't afraid to break the rules if he wanted to. Um, he would use the 12-tone series more as a, as a guideline, and he would often write rows that even had tonal implications. A really great example of this is his violin concerto. He had been commissioned by the American violinist Louis Krasner to write it, but uh, the death of his good friend's daughter at, at only age 18, such a tragic occurrence, really, really resonated with him. And so he wanted to use the concerto to express his grief and his, his feelings about this. So he used a 12-tone row in which the last several notes are actually a quote of a very famous Bach chorale, Estis Genug, or It Is Enough. Let's have a listen to the final adagio of the violin concerto. This is Anne-Sophie Mutter performing with James Levine and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra.
a beautiful example of how the rules of the 12-tone method can be relaxed a little bit and even express deep emotion like grief. We heard the adagio from Alban Berg's Violin Concerto. That was Anne-Sophie Mutter performing on violin with James Levine leading the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. So there we have a very different musical personality, Berg and Webern. Webern uh, takes the 12-tone idea and, and makes it even more strict, as strict as it can be. Berg, on the other hand, relaxes it a little bit, uses it more as a framework, and certainly finds ways to inject emotion into what seems to be only a cerebral way of presenting music. So already Schoenberg's first pupils are uh, tweaking his original ideas, and we're seeing that though people are adopting the 12-tone method, they're doing it very differently. They're injecting their own personalities into it. In 1951, the composer Pierre Boulez wrote a book called Schoenberg is Dead, in which he argued that Schoenberg did not go far enough and that people should not follow Schoenberg, but they should follow Webern. And he says, Perhaps one could enlarge the serial domain with intervals other than the halftone. Perhaps one could generalize the serial principle to the four sound constituents, pitch, duration, intensity, and attack. Perhaps, perhaps... So this is very cerebral thinking here, as, as we already know. It's a cerebral system, and it attracted people like Pierre Boulez. And uh, what he invented here is called total serialism. And now he's going to take the 12 pitches and order them like Schoenberg had done. But he's also going to do the same thing with dynamics, how loud or soft the piece is, and with rhythm, and maybe even with timbre, different instrumental colors. So you're not going to hear one instrument until you've heard all the others in the row. You're not going to hear a loud dynamic until you've heard all of the others. The first piece that Boulez wrote incorporating total serialism was called Structures One. Let's have a listen just to a little bit of this. This is the uh, brother piano duo, Alphonse and Alois Kontarski performing. Just a little bit there for you of Structures One by Pierre Boulez, performed by Alphonse and Alois Kontarski on piano. It's a piano duo. An example there of total serialism, where he's applied this very cerebral concept of ordering things to the pitches, the rhythms, the timbre, duration, everything that you can do with music has been firmly established before the piece was even composed. A uh, very cerebral way, of course, of, of organizing music by Pierre Boulez, and definitely a tweak on Schoenberg. Belez very famously thought that Schoenberg did not go far enough with his approach to serialism. You're listening to Relevant Tones, a show featuring the music of contemporary composers. This is the second of a three-part series tracing the influence of composers Stravinsky and Schoenberg from 1912-1913 all the way up to the present era. You can find out more information about us on Facebook or on our website at relevanttones.com.
On today's show, I'm tracing the influence of Arnold Schoenberg from 1912 when he unveils his Pierrot Lunaire, the first freely atonal work, through the invention of serialism six years later, the organized system of atonality, and then all the way down into the modern era. And when I had the idea for these shows, tracing Stravinsky and Schoenberg into the modern era, I was thinking that it's kind of interesting, and I don't know that anybody else has talked about it before, uh, but the so-called uptown, downtown scene in New York in the 60s, 70s, and 80s was a big divide with the uptown composers being the serial composers. Their music was, as we've heard, angular. The rhythms are very complex. The harmonies are equally complex, often derived from atonality, whether in the serial style or freely atonal, um, but still can be very difficult to listen to, can be unsettling. Um, and it was their conviction that this was the, the music of the future. This is what people had to be doing. If you weren't doing this, you were, you were not doing music a favor. <laughs> you were retrogressive and even you know morally suspect. Uh, contrast that with the composers on the downtown scene who were um, oftentimes not even composers, sound artists. And so this was the downtown scene. Out of that, we get the minimalists. We get the... Uh, the free improvisers. It's a lot more melodic. It has a more stable rhythmic beat. Um, but it's still my contention that uh, without Stravinsky and his breaking away from serialism with neoclassicism, we wouldn't have been able to have had the downtown movement. So I think it's very interesting over almost 100 years to trace uh, these developments and two titans of modernism in music um, still very much influencing composers today. Well, as far as the uptown scene goes, there was no one more influential than Milton Babbitt. He was on every panel. If he was at a concert, people would look at him to see his approval. He really was the uptown composer. Let's have a listen to his style of music in the second string quartet. And I, I think that Milton Babbitt took all of this cerebrality of serial music to uh, new heights. <laughs> um, he's also infamous for having written an article about his style, Who Cares If You Listen? <laughs> that kind of provocative title uh, has really defined serialism since Milton Babbitt. Let's have a listen. This is a little bit of the second string quartet of Milton Babbitt. This is very cerebral music performed here by the Composer's Quartet. Just a taste for you there of Milton Babbitt's Second String Quartet, performed by the Composer's Quartet. This is serial music at its most cerebral, I think. Um, he's really got a mathematic way of justifying everything that he's doing musically. There's no thought there, I think, towards um, melodic development or other elements of music as we normally think of them. Babbitt would become a huge pioneer in electronic music, which is uh, very well suited for a mathematical mind such as his. So that is the sort of prototypical uptown composer there, Milton Babbitt. 
he was somebody that, um, you know, in, in these um, midtown and uptown concerts in New York at Lincoln Center at Columbia University, especially, this is in the 70s and 80s, you know, was really the arbiter of taste. If he liked a piece, it was popular uh, within that <laughs> within that community. If he didn't like it, it, it wouldn't be done again. So very influential composer in that particular sphere. Again, I'm tracing the uptown, the genesis of that style back to 1912 with Pierrot Lanaire Schoenberg and his quest to create modern music for modern times. So another composer who frequently comes up on the lists of the uptown scene is Bernard Rands, uh, a guy that definitely knew Milton Babbitt. But Bernard Rands is a very different kind of composer. I think he's um, definitely uh, not so cerebral as Babbitt. Certainly um, there's a uh, sense of musical line in his works. Let's have a listen to the first section of his concertino. This is the Network for New Music Ensemble, Jan Krzywicki Conductor. Just a few minutes there of the concertino by Bernard Rands, performed by the Network for New Music Ensemble, Jan Krzywicki, conductor. All the elements are there of uptown music, the angular lines, the complex rhythms, complex harmonies, that kind of restless quality to it, and derived also from European music making. Again, Schoenberg thought that he was moving the German tradition forward. Uh, his pupils, Berg and Webern, the three of them were known as the second Viennese school, so very indebted to European music making. And I think the, the musicians, the composers who came in that tradition later, all the way up to what we call the uptown scene in New York of the 70s and 80s, and to a certain extent today, are indebted to that European tradition. The composer I want to feature next is very much alive, very much of our era, and well-known to Chicago audiences. Augusta Reed Thomas was the composer in residence for many years here at the Chicago Symphony, created some really wonderful programs, and is a composer also associated with the uptown style of music making. She was very, very good friends with Pierre Boulez, and uh, in fact got several early career breaks from him. He conducted a lot of her music in the early years. Let's have a listen to Pierre Belez conducting members of the Chicago Symphony in the first movement of Augusta Reed Thomas's piece In My Sky at Twilight. Christine Brandis is the soprano. 
a great performance there by Christine Brandes, the soprano. That is such a difficult part to sing. I mean, even just to find those pitches, honestly, is, is so hard. She does such a wonderful job. And a very expressionistic style of singing, too. Not everybody can bring it off. You have to really, really, really act it out and, and uh, bring it to life. Great, great singing by Christine Brandes. That was also Pierre Belez leading the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. We heard the first movement, In My Sky at Twilight, by Augusta Reed Thomas, who was the composer in residence here at the Chicago Symphony for many, many years. If you heard the whole program at the beginning, we played a little bit of Schoenberg's Pierrot Lunaire, and I think we've kind of come full circle here. We're about 90-some-odd years after the premiere of Pierrot Lunaire, but we're hearing the same kind of elements in this music by Augusta Reed Thomas. So there's a direct musical influence there, the expressionistic singing, the, the gestural kind of music rather than melodic writing, the complex harmonies, complex rhythms, lots of different timbres constantly shifting. None of this has been serialized. We're not doing that anymore. Like I said, serialism, total serialism. These styles have kind of run their course, but the influence is undisputable and a hallmark of the so-called uptown composers. As I said, this is the second of a three-part series tracing the influence of these incredible giants of music, Schoenberg and Stravinsky. 1912, 1913, right up to our own era, the influences are still there undisputable in the music that we're hearing these days, and uh, especially the creation of the uptown-downtown dichotomy in New York, which still very much exists. So the third show of the series will be devoted to these composers who uh, either were in one camp and and went over to the other, or who tried to synthesize the two styles, um, or who just don't quite really fit (laughs) into it, did their own thing. I'm talking about composers like Elliot Carter, John Cage, who is associated really with the downtown scene in most people's minds, but I think there's a lot more to him. I'll talk about that on the next show. should be a great show, and I hope you'll join me then. Relevant Tones is produced by Jesse McWhorters at WFMT, with special thanks to Seth Kelly. For more information about the program and the artists we've featured, you can find us on Facebook or visit our website at relevanttones.com. Relevant Tones is made possible by the generous support of Grosvenor Capital Management, Carol Joins and Abby O'Neill, DePaul University, the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, an anonymous donor, and the listener supporters of WFMT. I'm your host, Seth Bosted, and thank you very much for listening.